As you know, we've been in a sermon series on Martin Copenhaver's intriguing book, Jesus is the Question. You'd expect it to be titled, Jesus is the Answer, but he titled it in a provocative way, Jesus is the Question. And we've been studying this fall in the sermon series and in small groups, the 307 questions that Jesus asked. And actually, if you were here last Saturday night, we actually read all 307 of the questions as the end of that evening with Dr. Copenhaver. But also, Jesus was asked 184 questions, and he answered between three and eight of them. Well, today is the last sermon in this series, and I'm honored that Jessica Von Lohr asked me to preach this last sermon in this series. But the thing that intrigued me about this question for today, I've really come to believe that this is life's most important question. It's embedded in our scripture today. Don't be fooled by the shortness of this scripture. This is power packed. And if we took this seriously, it would change our life. Listen for the word of God. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, in the silence of this moment, we come before you, emptying ourselves of anything that would distract us so that we might focus on life's most important question. And even more important than the question, how will we answer this, O oh God? To that end, bless and anoint this message. We know you will, for we pray with anticipation in the strong name of our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. Amen. Well, the author T.S. Eliot says, every now and then, life drops an unavoidable question at your door. So the unavoidable question that Jesus asked his disciples also demanded a response. And of course, the question is, who do you say that I am? Now, before we examine this question a little more carefully, I want you to notice several things. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus waited three years to ask this question. He did not ask the disciples this question when he first called them on the Sea of Galilee and asked them to follow him and he would make them fishers of men and women. He didn't ask them this question then. He waited three years so they could be with him. They could learn from him, pray with him, watch him as he healed people who were blind and maimed and lamed, as he healed the man who stretched out his hand toward Jesus with leprosy and Jesus touched him, a leper and cleansed him. They were with Jesus in the boat on the Sea of Galilee when they were scared to death. They woke up and, and he, they were terrified. There was a storm and they thought they were going to be, be plunged over into the sea. And Jesus was asleep. They woke him up and said, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he calmed the storm. 
And they ask themselves, who is this that even the waves and the wind obey him? Then he saw, they saw him by the Sea of Galilee when there were all these crowds and they were hungry and the disciples, remember this, wanted them to go away, send them away. And, but Jesus said, no, how many loaves and fish do you have? And they had five loaves and two fish and they fed this crowd. They were with him when he multiplied the loaves and the fish and they saw it. And they even saw him when he changed the priorities and the value system of two tax collectors, one named Zacchaeus, who was up a tree in Jericho, and they saw this Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and very rich. They even watched him be completely radically changed. And he not only had cheated people out of money, but he paid everything back fourfold, and he gave half of his goods to the poor. He was a radically changed person. The disciples saw this. And they saw another tax collector who became one of their brothers named Matthew, who became a disciple of Jesus Christ. They saw all this with their own eyes. So they weren't ready for the question, who do you say that I am back three, three years ago? But Jesus was hoping they were ready for it now. Notice also that the setting in which he asked the question, he didn't ask them by the Sea of Galilee, he didn't ask them in the boat, he didn't ask them by the shore or in the small towns of Capernaum or Bethsaida where they, for, for which they were familiar. He took them 60 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to a region called Caesarea Philippi. It's interesting Jesus took them there. It's the source of the Jordan River. It's a beautiful area with lush gardens and trees and waterfalls, and I've seen it myself. It's a gorgeous area. But the reason he took them there is it's also called Banyas. And Banyas is from the word Pan, the Greek god Pan, they thought was born in a cave in that area. Today, to this day, there are shrines there and inscriptions in these caves where the god Pan was born and where he worshipped. So people worship Baalism and Pan and these gods there, the secular world there. And there's a temple there to, to Caesar. So all these gods, Caesar, Pan, Baal, they're all worshiped there. So in that setting where all these gods of the secular world are, Jesus said in that setting, who are people saying that I am and who do you say that I am? Notice also that Jesus doesn't ask the question right away, even in this setting, he asked them first, well, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? He kind of tiptoes into the question. And they say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And then he asked the question, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Martin Copenhaver said to ask that question is like to drop a silver dollar on a glass floor and hear the ripples. I don't think the disciples even breathed when he asked the question. Have you ever asked someone a question and your life depended on it? Or, or you remember how when you were first in love and, and you asked someone, do you love me? Or maybe said to them, I love you. That's a risky thing to say. I was a freshman in college and I had fallen in love with a woman who has now been married to me for over 50 years. And I asked her though, when I fell in love with her, we'd known each other for a few months and I had fallen completely head over heels in love with her. And one day as we're walking to a class, I looked at Suzanne, I remember her being so beautiful. I looked her in the eye and I said, I love you. And what did I want her to say? 
I love you too. But she didn't say that. She said, that sounds so good. I said, well, give her time, give her time. But eventually she said, I love you too. But let me just say, it's a risky thing to say. I was perspiring when I first said it. Because it's a risk to say that. Imagine the risk when Jesus had poured three years of his life into these guys, these 12 guys. And he poured three years. Was, one of them was a former tax collector. He poured his life into them. And now he says, who do you say that I am? And he wants to know, did they get it? <laughs> did I waste my time? Or, or have they finally understood who I am? Who do you say that I am? How would you answer if Jesus looked you in the eye and asked that question? It's a risky question. Simon finally breaks this stunned silence of the disciples, and it's an uncomfortable silence, and he finally says, you are the Messiah. And I wonder whether he even asked it with a question, you are the Messiah? Or was it an emphatic, you are the Messiah? We can't tell here from the text. But what we do know is that the Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed one of God. Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T, Christos, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning the anointed one of God. So Matthew, uh, Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah. It's a, it's a bold faith statement. In Matthew's version of this same story, Simon Peter is commended. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven has revealed this to you. And then he says, you're Peter. He gives him the new name. You're Petros, rock. And on the rock of your faith, I will build my church. The Roman Catholic Church thinks Peter's the first pope. So in this setting, Jesus is commending him. But notice in Mark's version, there's no commendation. Mark is just just the facts. When Simon says, you are the Messiah, Jesus sternly, notice in your scripture, Jesus sternly warns them not to tell anybody about him. Why is that? Why wouldn't Jesus want everybody to know he's the Messiah? Well, as you know, Messiah was a very controversial term. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Jews thought was going to be a political military ruler who would defeat their enemies and restore them to the glory they knew under David and Solomon. He was going to come on a white horse with a stallion and with a sword. He was going to defeat all Israel's enemies. But the kind of Messiah that Jesus knew he was supposed to be was radically different. A suffering servant Messiah who wouldn't defeat Israel's enemies, but would defeat humanity's greatest enemies of sin and death. He had to die on a cross. Radically different Messiah than anybody thought about. So what would you answer if Jesus looked you in the eye or me in the eye and said, who do you say that I am? How would you answer What is your answer? Would we try to straddle the fence, as many do? Many intellectuals down through history have straddled the fence. Well, Jesus, some say, was a great teacher. Jesus had the finest moral values of anybody who ever lived. Jesus was an ethical example for everybody. He was a prophet. Many brilliant people have said this. But C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity and many of his other books, he said, that option isn't available to us. Jesus was a good person, a great teacher, a great prophet. Lewis says, the claims Jesus made are so outrageous, like, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you may die, yet shall you live. And anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Who lives and believes in me will never die. And Lewis says he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. Take your pick. But he can't be anything else. He can't just be a great moral teacher or a great ethicist, and say the outrageous claims that he's made. It's ridiculous. He's either a liar or a lunatic or a lord. Karl Barth, the great theologian from Germany who founded neo-orthodoxy, that great movement of kind of reforming the church after the reformers and brought in a whole new emphasis on grace. And the word of God, the Bible, is with a small w pointing to the word, capital W, of Jesus Christ, the word of God, Jesus Christ. Barth taught about all that. So he's at Princeton Theological Seminary, my alma mater, and Jessica von Lower's alma mater, and Jeff O'Grady's alma mater, and Ron White's alma mater, and we went to that great school, and Bart taught for an hour, and it was brilliant, but then at the end of his lecture, one of the students said, Dr. Bart, does God reveal the divine self in other religions, or just in Christianity? My friend Earl Palmer, who's pastor in Berkeley, California, in Seattle, Washington, and is a fabulous Bible teacher, he was in the room and he said, Bart's response was like lightning and thunder in the room. Bart said, God doesn't reveal the divine self in any religion, including Christianity. God reveals the divine self in God's Son. The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, Bart said to that stunned crowd, is an invitation for a personal relationship with the living God. And then Bart said, this is a staggering invitation. Because if what Bart said is true, Jesus was inviting the disciples, who do you say that I am, into a personal relationship with the living God that is intellectual, volitional, emotional, relational. It's an invitation to spend your life with God, an eternal life with God. It's an invitation. God loves us so much, God can't stand to live without us, is what Bart's saying. But how do we get a handle on what does it mean to believe, to say, I believe in Jesus Christ? Because that's what Peter was saying. I believe you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does it mean to believe? Years ago, there was a Frenchman named Charles Blondin. He was a tightrope walker and a circus entertainer, and he was brilliant at tightrope walking. But he wanted to do something more dramatic than just walking a tightrope in a circus. He wanted to go outside and do it in a way that would, be, would, would really make a statement. So he went to Niagara River in New York, where Niagara Falls is, in 1860, 1859, in June the 30th, and he put a tightrope of 1,150 feet across the Niagara River over the gorge, Niagara Falls. And then he got with his pole and he got on this tightrope and a crowd had gathered to see this and he walked, Charles Blondin did, 1,150 feet across that gorge to the other side. And then when he got there, the crowd erupted. He said, now, how many in the crowd believe I could do it again? Well, the crowd applauded. They'd seen him do it, so they believed he could do it again. And they erupted in applause. Then he said, 
How many believe I could do it with a person on my back? The crowd applauded again, and they all raised their hand. They believed it. And then he said, okay, who will be the first to volunteer to get on my back? There wasn't a Presbyterian in the crowd. And nobody said they believed it, so his manager, Harry Colcord, got on Bondan's back. It's a true story. And he, they walked together across the tightrope across Niagara Falls. Now, what does it mean to say, I believe in Jesus Christ? It means to put your full weight down on Jesus Christ. It means to take a risk. It's intellectual. I believe you can do it. I believe you can save me. But it's also relational, it's also emotional, but it's also volitional, it's an act of the will. It's an all-comprehensive kind of commitment. And this is what Karl Barth is saying, that, that God invites us into an, a comprehensive commitment to give as much of ourselves as we can at a moment in time to as much of God as we understand. And then as we understand more, to give a little more. As we understand a little more about God, we give a little more and a little more and a little more. It doesn't mean we make the all-encompassing commitment right away. The disciples didn't do that. Notice Jesus didn't ask the question at the beginning of the three years. He asked at the end of the three years. He knew his time was short. But what would it mean for you and for me to take one little step of faith today? Because this question isn't just theoretical. Who do you say that I am? As Bart said, it's profoundly personal. Tom Cousins is a friend of mine. He's an Atlanta developer, and he gave me a new understanding of what it means to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. Tom Cousins is a real estate developer in commercial real estate, and much of the city of Atlanta, he's actually built, his construction firm is built, and he's a wonderful Christian layperson. He's not a pastor. He's a, an elder in the Presbyterian Church. But he's a wonderful man, and one day he started a foundation because he wanted to take the money that he had accumulated, and he thought he wanted to do something good with it. So he assembled a group of trustees, and they've invested in many things, but the thing they have primarily invested in is breaking the cycle of intergenerational poverty in America. He's got an amazing program to go to cities across America. He'd like to come to Los Angeles and break the cycle of intergenerational poverty. It's working in 12 cities now across the country. He wants to do it in more and more and more and more. And the other thing he wants to invest in is the renewal of the church of Jesus Christ. And I've been involved in kind of helping him do that in my consulting on the, the side of my ministry and so Tom is often, I've seen him at these foundation meetings when I've gone to ask for a grant, and he always leaves a chair empty at the end of the table. And he sits next to the chair, but he always leaves the chair empty right at the end of the table. And I wondered, why is he doing this? So he sat on the side of the table, but doesn't sit in the chair. And then he said to all of us, his trustees and those of us who are applying for a grant, he said, I want everybody to know that, that I'm not the CEO of this firm. Oh, I, I know I am in name only, and it's my money that I made in the real estate business that we're investing in. He said, I, I get all that. We're giving it away. But here's the thing. I said some years ago that I believe in Jesus Christ, and I mean it. So I leave a chair. He said this to the foundation board. I leave a chair at the end of the table so that it's a reminder to me that the real CEO of this foundation is sitting there and his name is Jesus Christ. 
So I don't want us to make any decision and give away this money in any way that we couldn't do it if the real CEO was sitting there. I don't want us to use a tone of voice to each other or use vocabulary in these meetings that we couldn't use if the real CEO was sitting right there because I believe he's sitting right there. And do you know that foundation has given away millions and millions of dollars to wonderful causes? But I think the reason they've done so much good is the real CEO is really sitting there. So it caused me to wonder in my life, what difference would it make for me if, if I left a chair empty as I make a decision and had the real CEO sitting there? What if I invited the real CEO into our family and into our neighborhood and into our church and into the ministries I have? And what would, what would it mean to me? And it's changed the way I look at the ministry thinking, maybe the real CEO, maybe he really is sitting there. And if he is, what difference would that make? Would he give me guidance? That's given me a handle on what it means to say, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Oh, T.S. Eliot's right. Every now and then, life drops an unavoidable question at our door. The question is, what will we do when Jesus Christ asks us, who do you say that I am? How will we respond? What will be your answer to that question? I close with a thought that years ago, a Roman Catholic man died, got, became ill, he eventually died, but he had cancer, and he said to his daughter, I don't like the fact that I don't know how to talk to God. I don't know how to pray. I just have no clue as how to do it. I've been going up to the Roman Catholic Church for years, but I just don't know how to pray and talk to God. So his daughter went, went to the priest and said, my father's got a cancer diagnosis, and he's not going to live very long, and he really doesn't know how to pray, how to talk to you, and how to talk to God. And she said, would you go to the hospital and teach my dad how to pray? The priest said it would be an honor. So the priest went to the hospital and he taught the, the man how to pray. And he went every week and every week and every week for months and was talking to this guy about how to pray, how to talk to God. Well, the man finally became very, very ill. The daughter went to see him. She knew he wasn't going to live very long and she said her prayers, and she wept to her dad, told him how much she loved him, and she finally let him go, and she went out to get a bite to eat, but she said goodbye to him before she went, wondering if, she'd, if he'd be there when she came back. Well, sure enough, when she came back, he had died in the moments when she was gone. She told the nurse and called the funeral home and made the arrangements and did all the things you do when a loved one dies, and then she thought, oh, I better go by the the Catholic Church, because the priest will want to know not only has my dad died, but the priest will want to know, this is very interesting, the priest will want to know some things about my dad. So she went by to thank him. She said, Father, you can't imagine how much better my father was after you taught him to pray. He looked forward to his weekly visits with you, and he didn't tell me what you two did or what you talked about, but he just told me that his prayer life took off. And the priest smiled and said, you know, it was the simplest thing I taught your dad. It wasn't complicated at all. I just told him a little, little secret of how to pray. And he bought it and loved it, and it seemed to change his life. And the daughter said, well, what was the secret you told him? He said, I just said to your dad, if ever he can't pray and he wants to talk to Jesus and can't pray, just take that chair, that chair right, right next to his bed, and just pull it over real close to the bed. And just talk to Jesus as if he's in the chair 
The priest said, because I said to your father, because I believe he is in the chair. The daughter burst into tears, streaming down her face. The priest said, did I say the wrong thing? She said, oh, no, 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 no. You said the right thing. It's just now I understand what I saw when I went back in the room. And the priest said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, I had said goodbye to my father, and I went to get a bite to eat. When I came back, he had died, and his body was in the bed, but his head wasn't on the pillow. He had leaned way over, and his head was in the chair. 